Welcome to the Prime Effects Podcast. I'm your host, David Shillington. In this podcast, we'll be normalizing the conversation around mental health and we'll be interviewing elite athletes, some of Australia's admired sporting stars, and finding out what strategies they use to overcome setbacks in their life and what we can learn out of that to use in our life and equip you with some worthwhile strategies that are proven to boost your mood, motivation, energy, all things we call mental fitness to help us feel our best and perform our best. Enjoy the show. All right, I'm here with Ben Moen, uh, former Wallabies captain, rugby union star, and now coach. We're going to talk about what is being coachable and what makes a good coach. Uh, Ben's turned his attention to coaching other players and supporting them with their careers to help them achieve their best. And there's some wonderful insights that can translate over into the workplace for your benefit. Ben, I only just saw you last week. We're at a fundraiser for uh, for Dean Mum and, uh, and his passions, one of your old teammates. I must say, one of the best fundraisers ever. He's yeah, up to good. some good stuff, Dean, isn't he? Yeah, he is, mate. They've got, uh, he and his pa- uh, wife, Sarah, have got an amazing story. So as Sarah puts it quite frankly they've got six children Mm -hmm. but only two are still with them and so four passed away shortly after birth which obviously is a very challenging time to go through that circumstance at any time in your life but particularly when it was the first few pregnancies that she'd had so instead of just leaving that as a, a really challenging experience in the past and trying to move on they've tried to harness that energy yeah and They've turned that into their own charity, mm-hmm. and so they self-fund research into early child premature births. Yep. And look, mate, they've done an amazing job. Their big mandate is they want charity to be fun. They've kept their charity set up in a way where there is no overheads at all, so any dollar that comes in goes straight directly to their own researcher, and I think that's really a, an amazing setup where they've been able to take these tragedies turn it into something they want to save other people from. And they've created this really fun, great atmosphere around everything they do. And so we held the first ever Brisbash, Barefoot Brisbash. So it was obviously a tournament set up where you had eight teams come along, 10 to a side, and then thanks very much for your participation as one of the celebrities. So we had some great celebrity support in terms of Wally Lewis, Danelle Wallum, Mace Gardner, James Hall, Will D. Mum. So everyone volunteered their time. And then the team's given a celebrity player for the day, which was really good. And they were their team captains. And then we played a round-robin format. And my team won the finals. It was a good, really fun day. And Sounds because- rigged if your team won the grand final. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Wally hit me for a six off my last ball of the day, which was good because the bloke before it had hit me for five sixes. Yeah. We wanted to get Wally on strike and then I thought this might be a little bit easier. And then he tonked me over the fence as well. So, <laughs> But look, it was a great day because it was about – being in bare feet, dress up. It was about connection with other groups. It was a passive networking event as well. Mm-hmm. We had the music going all day, plenty of drinks, plenty of great food, and we encouraged people to, in their downtime, connect with other yeah. teams and create a bit of banter and say, mm. all around just a great event and raised over $20,000 for the charity. So Incredible. Version 1 was a success. We look yep. really excited about Version 2 next year. Yeah, oh, it was a fantastic day. And I texted you just yesterday the day before saying how good it was and count me in for next year. I was on the Ray White team from Balimba, Scotty Darwin and his crew there. That's right. And enjoyed a couple of quiet beverages and we cheered a couple of sixes. Had a bit of a laugh at some of the clean bowling that got done as well. <laughs> so, 
yeah, there's some ups and downs of the day and something I'll be a part of next yeah. year for sure. Yeah, no, it was great. Hey, good yeah. fun. And Wally Lewis, I don't know how old he is at the moment. Must be about 60-ish. Yeah. He, um, he is fit and active and- He is. Uh, very impressive. Yeah, and a left-hander, which I didn't expect. Yeah, so little. my off-spin played right. I thought this will line up well. He's left-hander. I've got off-spin. This will come in the right angle. Nah, straight over the fence. Yeah. He's breaking that mold of former footy players, I guess, that get a big beer guard and a bit lethargic. And I know you're really passionate about health and fitness and yeah. uh, you keep yourself in very good shape. Like you could still put the boots on tomorrow. Is that actually ever a temptation to put the boots back on? No, never. No. no. <laughs> I think that like, when you're a young fellow and you're coming through, there's driving deep determination to prove yourself and there's that warrior spirit and then all of a sudden like it's just a day that light goes off <laughs> sick of being when injured. it's off yep. it's off yeah absolutely <laughs> what do you do to maintain your health and fitness today well i love starting every day with training i give myself the weekends just to chill we've got three young children so running around up on a saturday's dedicated to them and, and their commitments but Monday through Friday, both my wife and I are very active. So we work a rotation. She'll go running first thing in the morning and she comes home and then I go to the gym or go for a run. But I just found transitioning out of professional sport, we had structured times to get your physical exertion in the day. When I transitioned straight into life post-rugby, I really wanted to make sure that that part didn't drop out. Yep. And with kids in school and, and then other commitments throughout the day, the only time, like most Aussies, to do it is 5 a.m. And so that was a bit of a rude shock when I first started trying to get used to training first thing in the morning. But now I absolutely love it and I couldn't imagine not starting my day like that. Yeah. So your training schedule back when you were professional was your first session around 9 or 10 normally? Yeah. Like you had a slow start to the day because yeah. you'd always start with a team meeting or check-ins yep. or whatever. And then you'd sort of do your field session and most gym sessions were done in the afternoon. You could sort of cruise in after lunch and have your pre-workout or whatever, try and get mm. your motivation back up and then into it. So flipping that to 5am was a big shock at start, but I can't imagine doing it any other way. You certainly get used to it and it does wonders for you in so many ways, like obviously physical health, yes, but then it sets you up to have a better sleep that night for again, that early sunlight in the morning, that physical exertion, the good brain chemicals as a result. And so it must be do wonders for your mental health throughout the day to make you feel I guess, more resilient, like you can handle whatever the day throws at you. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's something really rewarding about sitting down to breakfast and knowing you've already achieved something. Yep. So... The days that I've gone, no, nah, I'll skip it tomorrow and I'll just have a chilled start to the day, I actually don't feel great mm. in the morning. And then I get a bit dirty at myself going, I know the formula, it works, yep. why am I ignoring it? Yep. And so I've become really self-disciplined in terms of that's 5 a.m., alarm goes off and I'm getting up no matter what. We make a good point and like simply enough, when some people get into a rut and they start feeling like not their usual self. Quite often, it's because they've just stopped doing the things that work for them. And you just mentioned it then that the days that you don't exercise, you don't feel quite yourself, quite a sharp, as good a mood. It's a really good lesson there to get back to doing the things we know work for us. Yeah, definitely. And there's a really important cycle. So there's energy and motivation, and we understand that. So that when we're feeling motivated, we've got high energy, we're going to do things. And we understand we feel motivated and we do things, we get great energy out of it. So yep. that's, But the big cornerstone on the other end of that three-element cycle is self-discipline mm. because there's going to be days where you don't feel like doing it yep. and your energy is low. Yep. That's the day you've got to rely on your self-discipline to get up, push yourself, get it done. And then all of a sudden at the end of achieving that, 
the yep. energy starts to flow. Absolutely. And then your motivation comes back. So you, you've got to rely on all those three cornerstones at, at different times. Yeah. The energy following, the flowing after the movement, that's really counterintuitive to people. People sort of sit on the couch or wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm out of energy today. The last thing I should do is exercise because then I'll be more out of energy, right? Exactly. Well, that's actually not right. The best thing we can do is put on our joggers, for example, and start walking. And eventually, we might want to start running if that's our thing. Or get to the gym and do a couple of warm-up exercises before we do the workout because once we do that walk or the warm-up exercises, the energy flows, doesn't it? Definitely. And the days that you've, like you just mentioned, where you're feeling flat and you're on the couch and you go, maybe not today, when you do push yourself and you get out there and you achieve it, whether that's a walk or run or whatever that element of your training is or the enjoyment of your physical side is, the moment you've finished, the first thought that comes to your mind is, thank God I did that. Yeah. I feel so good. I'm so glad I did that. Yep. I love it. Let's talk rugby union for a sec. Obviously, you're a big rugby union star. I played rugby league for a long time. And it's always been interesting. We've had similar geographical trajectories of our career, (laughs) so much so that we both grew up in Brisbane. We went to AIC schools. I went to Padua College. You went to Villanova. So we played rugby against each other. And then after school, both moved to Sydney. I went to the Roosters and you went to the New South Wales Waratahs. But we didn't leave it there. Um, we both moved to Canberra. You played for the Brumbies, captain the Brumbies. I played for the Raiders and captained them for some time as well. Where it's sort of changed just by chance is I had the chance to go to France, actually. And it's interesting how life works out with footy. When they made me an offer, I was only about 26 to play for the Catalans in France. And I went, oh, I'm not going to France. I'm too young. I don't want to waste my time over there. Well, I've still got all this career ahead of me. And then when I was about 32, 33, in the back end of my career, I rang them and said, hey, can I come over and play for you? And they went, nah, you're too old, mate. Yeah. So I didn't go to France. You did. And then here we are back in Brisbane, living about two kilometers from each other. Kids <laughs> go to school together, play rugby union together down at yep. East. It's like it's meant to be. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think the fact that we married best friends from school probably mm. helps that draw. Throw that in there. too. Throw yeah, that right. in too. Yeah. Uh, look, it's an amazing parallel the whole way through. And I think the cool thing about yourself and me, Shilo, is that we experienced different highs and lows mm. in different sports, but very similar. Yeah. Like ex- almost the exact same Absolutely. experience. And that's the great things we can fall back on now is we've had those moments of challenge. We've had those moments of euphoria where everything goes right. And the cycles in between. Mm. Um, and so it's nice to catch up now and, and talk through those stuff and, yeah. and see the commonality, regardless of what sports we played. It's that yep. ride, isn't it? Yeah. And that was one of my questions is we both got to play for Australia, which is a wonderful achievement, of course. But early in our career, it kind of looked like anything but that was going to happen. Myself, I had every injury under the sun possibly possible, a <laughs> couple of knee reconstructions, just throw in the challenges of making the NRL that already exist. But eventually, obviously, I did crack it and took the opportunity. You had similar sort of a bit of turbulence early on with the injuries, didn't you? Yeah, definitely. I was very fortunate. I came through school and the very linear success path of there was a rep team I was making it. And so I didn't really face any challenges until the first year after we had a Australian 21 tournament in the World Cup and unfortunately lost the final. And I came back and I'd taken up a contract with the Queensland Reds and it was a two-year contract. And so I thought, you know, this would be a great time to start setting myself up. There'd been no bumps in the road up until that stage. So the expectation from myself as a young guy was, well, if you just work hard and you get after something, it happens for you. It's mm-hmm. very simple. And there is no challenge that comes along with it as long mm-hmm. as you work hard. And so I bought a house with my wife, Lauren. We'd settled in and 
I showed up to pre-season training and about three weeks in, I tore my quad and I thought, oh, geez, that's that's challenging. I'm going to have to have a couple of weeks on the sideline. Then I came back and had another injury, another injury. And through that two-year period, I never actually got on the field. Mm. And in the end, I lost my contract with the Reds and had to go find work elsewhere. And when I reflect back on that time now, yes, it was challenging and yes, it was really quite confronting when you've got a mortgage and things like that and you're unsure about where you're going to go for work and how you're going to make that work. It was probably the most important period of my career because it set my mental fortitude up where I had two choices where I was going to wallow in self-pity and think, oh, this is tough for me or I was going to go, no, you know what, there's some great lessons to come out of this and I want to make sure I'm one of those people that can draw on the positives and use it as fuel. Yeah. And an opportunity came up to go down to Sydney and I went down there and the opportunity that came up was to join a squad that was laden with wallabies. It was a squad that was just ready to make its move to go challenge for a championship. So I wasn't going down there to be a star at all. I was actually going down there just to start again. Yep, yep. And I thought that's really unique. And so I had really fresh eyes where there was no expectation on myself to go down there and be a leader within that pack. There was no expectation to be the superstar. I just had to go down, find my feet and build my body back up and build my mental toughness back up. Yep. Because there were certainly periods through that, time I had at the Reds where I was just feeling sorry for myself. Oh, absolutely. You would have been. Yeah. And that's that loss of energy, loss of motivation. And it's a quick spiral that you can get caught into. Mm -hmm. And moving to Sydney really helped me get back on track. Yeah. Uh, Well, you certainly did get back on track. As I mentioned, captain the Brumbies and moved across to France, played for a couple of teams there. Probably most excitingly, captain the Wallabies, I guess. What were some of your career highlights along the way that you reflect back on now and go, man, I'm really proud of that? Yeah, look, I'm not someone that latches on to moments in games or the most important thing to me are the connections that I made with the people. And I feel really fortunate. Dean Mum's one of them. Uh, He and I played Australian schoolboys together and we were roomies and we got billeted out in Tonga. Mm -hmm. And so two game tour, Tonga and New Zealand, and we got billeted out in Tonga to these small villages and he and I shared a hut together. I was just about to say, give us some detail because I've been on a tour to Western Samoa for rugby, great grade 12, long time ago now. And man, was that an experience. I was going to say, give me some details. It is amazing. (laughs) So two young guys from Australia, not been exposed to this type of lifestyle at all. And we got billeted out and we the family showed up in a van and took us out to their village. And I remember walking into this house and I was thinking, geez, this this is a really nice house because there's two bedrooms and they must be sleeping out the back in, in other bedrooms. Mm. So this is quite a big house because the family was about 10 people. Yep. And it was only after the we went to sleep and woke up the next morning and there was no showers. So you were sort of flicking water on your face out of a bowl in the room. And a pig had walked through our room. <laughs> and uh, An actual pig. An not, actual pig. Not just Dean overindulging. No, no, a literal <laughs> pig. Massive warthog. Yep. I walked into Dean's room and I said, mate, there's a pig walking through this house. Okay. And he goes, this is crazy. And he goes, look at this. And there was people who were lined up outside his window to see us. And I said, oh, we should maybe go see where the family are. And when we walked around the corner and into the kitchen, that's where the family was sleeping. Oh, yeah. So the 10 of them had that were usually spread over these two bedrooms – as hosts for us had all congregated in the kitchen to sleep on the floor. And we were just so taken back. But we shared so many great experiences through that tour. 
and then Dean and I obviously still great best friends today. So for me, when I think about rugby career, I don't necessarily think about games or moments like that, but I do think about the friendships that were created. One, I did have a little special reflection moment, and I'm not one for a – I like to say, as an analogy, I don't have a rear vision mirror in my car. I don't yep. spend a lot of time <laughs> worrying about what's happened or yep. where I've been. I just sort of f- focus on the now. But I had a funny moment. Lauren was watching The Crown the other night, oh, yeah. and she's saying, oh, geez, I love Princess Anne this and Princess Anne that. And I had a cool moment where I said, yeah, I met Princess Anne because yep. she's the patron for Scottish rugby. Ah. And we had a test match at Edinburgh, and we'd won on the bell, and I actually had to go up and accept the cup of Princess Anne and got yep. to meet her and have a quick conversation. And obviously, she's lovely, and it's an amazing moment when you get to meet a royal. But I remember vividly, she'd given us this massive glass cup, and I was in my tag still, walking up oh, uh, yeah. all the stairs, and and I w- turned to go back down. I thought, I'm not going to be the bloke that trips sure. and drops the cup <laughs> down the stairs. So I turned to Princess and I said, could I please give this back to you? <laughs> I don't want to hold it. And she's like, oh, okay. And so, you know, you have all those little cool moments Absolutely, yeah. throughout your career, and yeah, they're the things that every now and then I do reflect on. Yeah, oh, that's incredible. And sport's wonderful for that, right? And... Oh, like my mates today that I went to school with are all mates that actually played, I went to grade one with, but also played under sevens rugby league with. And the guys who I didn't play under sevens rugby league with, I'm not really mates with today, but I went yeah. to school with them. So we just formed this extra special bond, I guess. You're spending more time together, yeah. but then you're sharing those ups and downs and bonding through that as well. And even like being a parent now, like I've got a daughter and son in school, grades two and three, I only know like one or two sets of parents that are parents of, yeah, my, my daughter's friends, but my son plays rugby union and I'm socialized with all the parents from yeah. that team. And that's what sport does. Hey, it brings the community a massive connector, massive connector. Yeah. So you're big on coaching. I know that about you. And I think our audience will pick up that from you as well as they listen to you talk. Where does your passion for coaching come from? I think it will twofold. So when I was growing up, I wanted to be a school teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my mum was a school teacher. I've always loved being around kids. I've loved the learning component. And I wouldn't say I was a great student. <laughs> I was okay, but I wasn't a great student. But really do love the different ways that you can teach the same thing and how you can adapt a teaching or a lesson to connect with a different student or a different way people learn. I thought that was really important. And all the great coaches I've had have had a variability in the way they deliver messaging to connect. And so whether that's technical or it's been around motivation factor, there's different ways you can deliver that. And so growing up, I always liked to think about teachers that I had and why they were good and what was different and why did I enjoy them. And I was very analytical in that space. Mm. And so I did grow up wanting to be a teacher. And so when I left school, I actually started my teaching degree and then rugby took off. So I parked it very quickly. And as rugby was developing through the career, you're constantly going through, well, like you would know as a sports person, you're constantly thinking, okay, well, what will be the next thing? Yeah, absolutely. Where am I going to transition to after? And I had a great coach in Jake White at the Brumbies and he was a school teacher. I had another amazing coach at the Brumbies, Laurie Fisher, who's now at the Wallabies, who's a school teacher. And Jake said to me, rugby is just a subject, we teach it. Yeah. That's the way he viewed at it. And so he would try and overlay his messaging differently to connect with different people. Yeah. And he was constantly changing things to try and have different variability in the way they mm. they delivered the same content essentially. And so as I was getting towards the back end of my career, I was doing a lot more coaching as you do as a senior player within the group. And I thought this is going to be a great 
thing for me because I really enjoy connecting with people. I love trying to find the way that everyone learns yep. and helping them achieve that. So yep. my last few years as a player, I would spend a lot of time ensuring that messaging landed with the players that I was in charge of looking after because if I was just doing a blanket message and I could tell that we weren't getting some sort of connection with a certain type of player, then I would make sure that I'd double back around to go catch him on, his, on the court oh, nice. and say, yep. hey, mate, you know, did that make sense or yep. how can I help you in that? And so that was just going to be a natural progression for me. So I was very fortunate that when I retired, I walked straight into a coaching job. Yeah, nice. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've got a great philosophy on coaching in that we're all really different. We receive feedback differently. We like to learn in different ways. We progress at different speeds, process things differently as well. And so not having that one size fits all is going to be wonderful for teams and individuals, of course. And some think of some of the great rugby league coaches and obviously Wayne Bennett comes to mind. And, and one of the things that I would say he's one of the greats is one of the reasons is because like he hasn't just been at the one club where he's created this culture or a situation where new players come in and have to fit the mold. And he just continues with that sort of what he's groundwork like that. He goes to different clubs mm -hmm. and he works with the players he's got there, all while the different players, different coaching staff, different facilities, and he still manages to have success at those clubs. Yeah. So his ability to adapt to the environment, whether it's players and resources and everything like that is incredible. Yeah, definitely. And I've been fortunate to spend a little bit of time with Wayne, like tiny bits. And the two things that stand out to me is, A, he has connection with his the people he works with, like yep. massive, deep understanding of who they are, what their current situation is, what challenges they might have, what motivates them. Like he really understands that connection piece, but then simple messaging. Yeah. So he doesn't try and overcomplicate it. He doesn't try and separate himself of, you know, I'm intelligent, you've mm. got to catch up to me. He's mm. on your level and it's yep. just really simple detail. And I love that approach. Mm. You're right. How he gets to know players. And I remember I did this presentation. I co-delivered it with Shane Webke recently. And Shane was talking about just how relatable Wayne was and how much he built a strong relationship as a foundation to coaching them. And that set him up to be able to deliver sort of direct feedback, hit people between the eyes when he needed to, mm. but also give them a good cuddle. And it's a genuine cuddle that the players know he's got their back. And I had him, Wayne, as a coach just a couple of times, like emerging origin camps, academy sport things back in the day. But then in the NRL, he coached the All-Stars team when it used to be the NRL All-Stars. Yeah. And I made two of those teams and he was my coach. And what always sort of made me laugh a little bit in a good way is how he got to connect with the players. And on team bus rides, you probably remember this from experience, that in the first couple of rows on the bus when you get on, that's where the coaches sit typically. Yeah. And they're on the laptops looking at game footage or whatever they might be doing. And then behind that, typically like the older players or the quieter players, introverted players, including myself, <laughs> they would sit there <laughs> and we'd read a book, watch some Netflix or have a chat to each other. And then down the back of the bus, that's where the hooligans are, the yeah. young hoons of the team, <laughs> some of those, even the Pacific Islander players with a boombox, yahooing. Wayne, but would go and park himself in the very back row in the middle seat, yep. right amongst all the hoons, all the hooligans, and he'd listen to them, how they talk to each other, who got along with who. Yep. When they share stories, he'd pick up that information, uh, listen to their music, how they got along. Yeah, he um, – and I think some players, when they go into those camps at first, would be a bit put off by that and go, oh, what's the coach doing down here? We better behave ourselves. Uh, but what I saw was the players warmed up to him straight away. Uh, he was like one of them, got them. And that set him up, I guess, to, yeah, have their trust, their confidence. Yeah. And you can only do that if you're genuine, right? Yeah. You can't do that if you're putting on a facade of connection and you go, oh, connection's important, so I'll try and do it. Yeah. It's who you are. 
Absolutely. You know, it's what you value. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, we can learn a lot from sport and transfer that into the workplace. A lot of the terminology probably sounds like sporting terminology, like being coachable and coaching, but really they're things that we do in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So everyone needs to be coachable, whether you're obviously working under someone and trying to take instructions and learn new processes, but also if you're a leader as well, you need to seek out feedback on how you can be a better coach. But first of all, being coachable, what does that mean to you? What are some of the characteristics people can focus on or strengthen to be coachable? Well, I think the most important thing is when you're listening to messaging or feedback is what is the goal of yourself? So is it to improve mm-hmm. or is it to defend yes. what you're doing? Yes. And that's really important. So if the goal is to improve, then you'll have the same analytical view that potentially someone from the outside look mm. has. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with it, yep. but it means you have to definitely take the feedback on board and then apply that and look deeply at what you're doing to see if there is improvement you can find because at the core there should be a driving force of I want to be the best I can be. Yep. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And I, it's a very simple messaging I'd say to people all the time is, is it your best? Yep. It's a really simple judgment. If you're mm-hmm. looking at something and you go, well, it's not my best, then you go, okay, well then of course it's going to be poor. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Or, or there's room for improvement. There's, genuinely, when people try their best at something and they go, that's my absolute best, you're going to receive great feedback. Mm. You're going to receive good, honest connection around, okay, well, that's great. And it might be too, it might be your best and it fails. Yep. But at least you can honestly look at that. And when you know you've given your best in terms of whatever you've delivered, when you receive feedback, you know that then that ceiling that was there before can be moved higher. Yep. And then you go, okay, well, my new best is higher. I'm excited about that. Mm. But there's got to be that driving growth mindset from within that says, just want to continue to push that ceiling higher. Yeah. So continuous improvement, growth mindset, being a great listener, being able to respond. It is so important. I'm going to ask you in a sec how we can improve our coaching as well to be able to deliver that feedback in a way, I guess, that's conducive to the person receiving it well and responding well. But I reflect back, I guess, on some of my moments in my career and playing for the Raiders, for example, you have to get feedback all day, every day. You play a game on a Saturday night. On Monday, you get feedback from the head coach, then the assistant coaches, maybe the middle unit coaches, I'd say, and then your teammates as well. Mm. You kind of get indirect feedback from fans and media and, and your family. Sometimes they're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to dad. Uh, <laughs> but um, they're the most honest potentially as well. Yeah. But so feedback's a normal part of it. And I knew that, well, I had to learn quickly that if I took it as I was defensive, as you said, as a threat, as an attack, then that wouldn't be helpful at all. And I needed to always take it as a learning process. We can't be perfect all the time. And when you do put your best foot forward and don't get it right, it's hard when you don't get it right. But knowing that you've always got that chance to improve, to reassess and try again, that's the important part of it. And so say I had a bad game on a Saturday night. It never happened, but just play with me in the story. (laughs) (laughs) I'd come into the coach's office on Monday, Dave Ferner maybe at the Raiders, and he'd sit me down and he'd go, Shillo, you made a few mistakes, mate. We need to talk through this. And so I missed some tackles, dropped balls, lack of effort, wasn't in position. He'd show me those six or eight things that I did wrong. He might not necessarily show me the good things because uh, we might tackle them at, at another time or yeah. he might not feel it necessary right now. But he definitely wants to show me the mistakes I made so that I don't make the same mistakes the next weekend and get exposed. Yeah. But say I didn't see it like that. Say I felt attacked. So he's showing me these six or eight clips 
And what they do is they show you a 30 to 60 second video where they show you the play leading into the mistake and then the play after that mistake to see like a bit of a result of that effort. Yeah. And so it's a 30 to 60 second video clip and missed tackles and so on. While he's showing me that, if my thought process was, oh man, I know I made a few mistakes, but do you have to show me all eight of them? Like, geez, you're giving me a bit of a hard time today. Yeah. Or I know I made some mistakes, but I did some good things too. Did you see the good things? How can you not show me that? Or um, I know we lost and I made mistakes, but some of my teammates made mistakes too. Are you telling them where they went wrong or are you just picking on me and singling mm-hmm. me out? That's a really normal thing for some players to feel. Yeah. But understanding that that's not the context of the conversation at all. And if I view it like that, it's going to evoke really negative emotions where I feel, yeah, attacked, picked on, maybe worthless or rejected, particularly if I was putting my best foot forward for that game. Mm. And then the behaviors that follow might not be very helpful too. I might sort of get a bit lippy or aggressive, argumentative with the coach, might walk out of the room and gossip about him. You know, that coach doesn't know shit. It was his game plan that led us to lose. Or maybe I bring the whole mood of the club down by kicking stones at training and feeling like it's not worth it. Yeah. It's a very unhelpful way to interpret that information. But what's more helpful is to know that, well, he's actually the coach. And knowing his role as a coach is to help me improve things that need improving so that they don't get exposed next weekend. That's good for me as a player, good for the team to win, good for my future as well. Mm. That's the role he's playing here. So that's why he's giving me this feedback. But also the role I'm playing as well, I should seek out feedback because I want to be the best player I can be. And that includes learning how I could do things better, not just looking at the good stuff all the time with my blinkers on. And so once we understand the context, roles, behaviors, motivations of everyone in that conversation, then I receive that better. And the emotions that that evokes is more positive, happy, thankful that someone's spending that time with me to improve my game, thankful that I've got a plan to become a better player, and the behaviors that follow, much more helpful where I get in the training paddock and I fix up those mistakes. Mm -hmm. So obviously two extreme examples there, but understanding that when we feel attacked and threatened like that, not very helpful with how we interpret things, leads us to make us feel pretty crappy and some unhelpful behaviors. So just understanding context is a big one. Massively. On that note, how can coaches, managers, peer-to-peer, how can we deliver feedback in a way that's more conducive to eliciting that good result? I always start with a question. I always ask the player or the people I'm working with, you know, what's your thoughts on how you went? Yeah. Because you want to get a barometer of where they're sitting. Yeah. Um, You might be going in there with the idea that there's a, a lot of improvement that's got to be jammed into this conversation and- you're unsure about their mindset around that. Did they see it in the same context you're seeing or are they not seeing it at all? Mm. And so usually what I find with the players is they come back to you or the person you work with and they go, oh, actually, no, I thought I was really good. Mm. And you go, okay, we've got to pivot this conversation quickly or it's, I was okay in these areas, but I was pretty poor in these. And so you can really support them and go, yeah, look, I thought you were pretty good in those areas too, but let's talk about the areas of improvement. And so- then you've created an alignment of what you're talking about and you're on the same page, you're working together, Mm. where I think sometimes if you just come in and you start the conversation as the person that needs to give the feedback and you're not engaging the person sitting opposite you straight away to get their buy-in around what's the feedback or what's been seen, Mm. I think you're starting at opposite ends straight away. So I always like to start the conversation of, you know, what are your thoughts? Where do you think it's sitting? And then, look, there's sometimes where you're dealing with something and they're so far off the record, they go, no. And then that's where you've got to pivot and be pretty direct and say, look, no, it wasn't acceptable and these are the reasons why. But I think you've always got to also leave them with a roadmap back to success. Yeah. And that's really important. So anytime you're working with someone, if you've 
giving them feedback around this has been poor, then you've got to give them the solutions as well. Absolutely, yeah. And or maybe not directly give them solutions, but then give them structures that they can go work around to find their solutions themselves because yep. that's a big part of the learning as well. Yeah. But I think when feedback's given poorly, it's because they circle the wagons and they go, it's my job mm. to tell them directly. Yeah. And then it's like they want to be that hard-ass person. They're not yeah. thinking about the person opposite them. And, and that, to me, comes back to connection. You know, do yeah. you have a good understanding of who you're dealing with? Is the goal of feedback to get them better mm-hmm. and feeling energy as they leave the room yep. to take that into the pathway of mm. improvement? Or is it just self-soothing for you to dress them mm-hmm. down? I think as a person who's coaching or in charge of responsibility of improving someone, you have to be honest with yourself as well. Yeah. Cool. Some of the things we do in workshops is around strengths identification. So helping people understand whether it's a technical skill, interpersonal type of skill as well. You know, what are they really good at? So sometimes, of course, when we're getting bad feedback, we're focusing on everything we've done wrong rather than knowing our ability to be able to bounce back or to solve the problem, I guess, that's being created for us here, presented to us. Yeah. So building people's confidence preemptively, I guess, for those moments yeah. uh, is very helpful to be coachable. Now, I probably should be clear when we're talking about this direct feedback because I've had a couple of questions after workshops before. How we give and receive feedback in sport, elite sport too, not junior sport, elite sport, is way different (laughs) to how you might do it in the workplace. Absolutely. And whilst it's normal and exciting actually for me, call me a weirdo, but exciting for me to, for the coach to show me six or eight things I did wrong because I see that as an opportunity to grow and become a better player and to fix up any weaknesses so I don't you know, have those moments where I'm embarrassed on the field, for example. In the workplace, we should be praising way more than we criticize, right? Mm-hmm. Do you feel that? Yeah, I do. And I also think when you've got a really good understanding of the person or the makeup of your team, yeah. you're going to have individuals that love really direct, hard feedback. That's what they crave. They, yep. They're supremely self-driven people and they want you to be honest and accurate. Yep. And then you're going to have other people that are softer souls mm. and they need to be given positive reinforcement a lot more than they're given that direct feedback. And, yep. and you need to wrap that honest feedback up in lots of compliments and yep. things they're doing well and redirection. And mm. so that's the skill of a leader or, or someone who's in position of responsibility is you have to identify which person you're dealing with yep. and, and cater your approach to them. Yeah, just reinforce that, build a good relationship. Because in the workplace, if we're managing people or working on teams with people and we don't even say good morning to them in the morning, we walk into the office, we walk straight past them and go to our desk or when we're around the water cooler or having a coffee at the local cafe, we see them, we don't even have a conversation with them. If we've never really spoken to them in any significant way, but then all of a sudden we come over to the desk and say, hey, so-and-so, just so you know, um, you actually didn't get this right in this piece or we were looking for something different here, then you're probably not going to set that up to succeed. No, definitely not. And we're not robots. We're human beings yeah. and we crave connection. You know, yeah. look at the way our societies are set up, the way we live in communities, mm. whether it's governance, religion, it doesn't matter. It's about connection, always yeah. about connection and interpersonal relationships. So we've got to make sure that we get outside ourselves within the work environment and and connect better, definitely. Yeah, So I want to wind you back to your junior sporting days because uh, one of the programs we've run at Prime Effect is called the Wellbeing Champions Program. And we work directly with junior sporting clubs across all codes. And we run different workshops, one for player wellbeing, to make sure they've got the tools to manage anxiety and boost their motivation, uh, be able to talk to them to each other around mental health as well. But then we also coach the coaches as well, the, um, the coaches, managers, or any other else 
to be able to have conversations with young people around mental health uh, because we know that players, when they leave a sport or a team, the number one reason is their coach. So for us, we want to help those coaches be more effective and clubs thrive, I guess, individuals mm. thrive as a result. Can you think about when you were a young player, coaches that might have had a wonderful impact on you and maybe coaches that had a not-so-wonderful impact? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. One amazing coach that has had a huge impact on me has been Laurie Fisher, yep. current Brumbies defence coach and now doing the defence of the Wallabies as well. Laurie's got an amazing presence about him. His model is very old school in some respects in terms of the way he delivers messaging, repeats expectations to his players. But one thing he has is a huge respect from the playing group because of the detail he puts in and the way that he works extremely hard to make sure that as a teacher, he connects all those mediums in the way that he can deliver those messages. So Laurie's been a huge influence in the way I coach and throughout my career. And I've just loved having him as part of my development. And and whenever I've had the chance to go back and do some professional development, I've made sure that I go try and tuck in next to Laurie because he's got an inquisitive mind. So what he's doing yesterday is not what he's doing tomorrow. He's happy to share what he's doing, which is really important. I think as a teacher, you want to constantly move that bar higher. So as a coach, has had a huge influence on me. I watch him develop ideas, share them so that everyone gets better and then he's on to the, developing the next thing. And I love mm. that concept. Yeah, yep. That really inspires me. Yeah. Cool. And role modelling, I think that's such a big thing. Just thinking about like junior sport as well. Oh, I think about, you know, obviously when I moved down to the Roosters after school, uh, it's 20 years ago, of course, you know, some of my teammates weren't necessarily like the best role models and I wouldn't blame them for any of my bad choices or things like that. <laughs> but it does make you realize, you know, as a young, impressionable person, when you look up to your heroes, I guess, even within your team, they're still your heroes, how much um, their role modeling behaviors influences you. Mm. I feel like that's a huge value of yours throughout your career and now post-footy, you know, working down at East, coaching them. You've got kids that play rugby union as well. Your son Jackson is a little weapon of a rugby union player. (laughs) How important is role modelling for you? Yeah, it's massively important. And I say to my young players all the time, you've got to find someone in the world which might have the athletic ability that you're chasing and you've got to look at what they're doing and then find out how they're preparing themselves to yep. achieve that. So that's definitely, whether it's a work environment, whatever, is finding someone that's got attributes yep. you want to aspire to have. And then there's the other side of it too, where I think on your personal side and your spiritual side is understanding who you are mm. and that's your core beliefs and yep. you've got to stick to them because there's going to be a lot of varied circumstances you get yourself in over the years and your potential role model that you have might change their pivot their direction. So you can't mirror individuals directly, but you've got to have things that you're aspiring to. But at the end of the day, you've got to have your core beliefs that are really driving your decisions. I'm a big believer in successful life. A successful life is about accumulating successful decisions. Yeah. And there's little forks in the road that we go through every day and pivotal decisions. And if we're not accumulating those good decisions, we can end up in a pretty unhappy place quickly. Absolutely. I want to ask you about how your son views your career, like how he looks up to you because I think about it candidly with my son. He's seven now and understood rugby league more and more over the last few years. And I've never sort of gone to lengths to try and convince him that I was some sort of significant rugby league player, but he slowly understood it better in that I know about two years ago, I went on Fox Sports to talk about the current Origin series as a former Maroon. And I got home and Ted was actually watching, my son Ted was watching Fox Sports. And I said, 
did you see me on TV? And he goes, what? Were you on TV? I said, oh, yeah, I was, I was just on Fox Sports. And he goes, oh, I just turned it on. And he goes, what did they say? And I said, oh, well, you were just talking about the Maroons. And he goes, and how did they introduce you on the show? And I said, <laughs> oh, they introduced me as David Shillington, Maroons legend. And he goes, legend? And I went, yeah, what's wrong with that? And he goes, well, you're pretty good, but you only scored 10 tries in your NRL career. <laughs> I was like, what? I played 200 games, played for the Maroons Australia. What do you mean just pretty good? And he goes, well, you didn't score that many tries. That's all I'm saying. And he just really- Different markers. <laughs> yeah, whoever scored a lot of tries uh, was a great player. How does your son look up to you in that way? Um, I've tried to distance myself from it a lot with him. Yep. Um, he asked me a lot of questions and I- sort of flat bat them away a lot because oh, I think that'll come around in time. But mm. also I say to it, he asked me, he goes, when you're at your best, where were you in terms of the world? Were you one of the best? And I said, no, my ambition was. Mm. And that's the key, mate, is your ambition has got to be to be the best. Yep. Whether you achieve it or not, is it doesn't matter. Mm. You've got to be pushing yourself that way. And so then I often leave it with him and because he does that comparative thing where he goes, do you reckon I can be good? Mm. And I said, mate, I reckon if you work harder, you can be better than me. Yeah. Much better. Yep. you got to work harder. Yeah. You know, that's the key. And I just try and drive it back into those work ethic things and yep. make sure we're building his belief system right. But I think I feel very fortunate that a lot of the videos of games I played is now buried in the archive. So <laughs> the memory is always better than the reality, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thrive in those conversations with my son, like you're talking about, that he sometimes wonders how he's going to manage his senior schooling with playing for the Maroons as a 16, 17-year-old, like he's living <laughs> in a dream world. But I say the same things. Look, if you want to work hard, then I've got no doubt that you'll be a successful player one yeah. day. But it comes off the back of sacrifice, hard work, discipline, yeah, all those definitely. things. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, Benny. Uh, you had a wonderful career as a player and you've got a huge career ahead of you as a coach. You're moving back down to the Brumbies, back to Canberra again? I am, yeah. I feel really fortunate that I get to go down there and take up an opportunity to yep. work back down in a place that was really special for us. We only had three seasons there, but I played my most of my Super Rugby yep. at the Brumbies, the larger portion of my career. And it's a place we're just deeply connected to with friendships and, mm. and great memories. We're doing a bit of a sea change, so moving out onto a farm nice. down there in New South Wales. Yeah, it's going to be a great way. We just thought... What a great opportunity to give the kids something unique that you just don't often get to have. You know, and that's the uniqueness of Canberra is you can live a rural lifestyle and be so yep. close to the city. So yep. really excited. Sounds like you've been watching Yellowstone on stand. You? You <laughs> Too <be> much, <laughs> right? Too much. <laughs> uh, well, all the best in your coaching career. By the sounds of things, uh, you're already doing some wonderful coaching and you're set up to really support players to achieve their best. And I'm excited for them and for you, mate. So thank you very much. Cheers, Joe. Thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Prime Effect podcast. This episode was brought to you by the Wealth Depot, experts in financial planning. This episode was also brought to you by SW Brokerage. If you're looking for a new home loan, car loan, commercial loan, then SW Brokerage are the people to talk to. And lastly, this episode is also brought to you by Fuel Your Life, the nutrition and dietetics specialist helping humans fuel their lives. See you next time. 